listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm Mike Gaston, I'm your host, and I am glad to have you along. Thanks for being here, guys. This is episode number 129 of the podcast, 129, and uh, I'm recording this on Monday, July 10th, 2023. Not sure what my regular recording date's gonna be now that I'm back at it. I'm not even sure what the regular publishing day each week will be. Historically, I would record these on a Sunday and get them up like late Sunday night, and uh, then they'd be available for you Monday morning. I might keep up with that, not sure. But it's Monday, and uh, I want to spend a little bit of time this afternoon recording the podcast. One thing I didn't bring up in my last episode, you know, in preparing to kind of get the show restarted again, I went and I listened to episode number 127, which was the last one I did. I think I did it like at the end of January, let's see. And um, one thing that was striking, and I'm not necessarily happy about it, but one thing that was striking about that episode is I, I had this cocktail in my hand and I even talked about, hey, you might hear some ice tinkling in the background. And there was a couple of times I paused to have a drink, have a sip. Um, so I guess, I don't know if it's news, but uh, very shortly after that episode, I quit drinking alcohol. I'd been wanting to kind of quit for a for a year or so. I kind of toyed with it for a while, dialed back a lot, you know, and, and then, you know, you dial, you know, these things is like you stop eating chocolate, then you start eating chocolate, that kind of stuff. So I dialed back a little bit. Um, alcohol's never been a problem for me in the sense that I've done things that I'm ashamed of under the influence of alcohol. But I did feel like it was getting in the way of some of the things that I wanted to do. You know, I would get to the afternoon, uh, you know, like right now I'm recording this around almost four o'clock on, on Monday, 4 p.m. And, you know, usually around 4, 4.30, I might go downstairs, mix a drink, bring it back up, keep working. You know, a little, an hour or two later, I might mix another drink. I might have a couple cocktails, two, three cocktails in a night. On the weekends, you might go out, stop at a, you know, local uh, craft brewer, brewery, get a beer or two, have a burger, sit out in the sun. Like, you know, it's just kind of that type of lifestyle. There was nothing happening where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm out of control or that, you know, I'm, I'm losing clients because of this and we're going to, uh, you know, get kicked out of the house kind of thing. But I did feel that that alcohol was starting to get in the way. There's a, there, were, there were a few things that bothered me. One is I have one drink. I mean, I don't know about you guys. Maybe I'm a, always. Been, maybe I've always been a lightweight. Maybe I'm just getting older, and I, I don't know what the issue is. But I have one drink, and I'm done. I'm just gassed out. Like I just don't have the mental energy. I don't have the focus, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, and I had once I had that drink around four, four thirty. There weren't a lot of like high quality of uh, hours left uh, in my day once I had my first drink, and. That was bothering me. I just felt like I wasn't getting to everything that I want to get to. I was being faithful in my client work, but there are other things like this podcast and writing and so on, even reading uh, some of my kind of research type reading. I don't, I, I used to do a lot of like, you know, read literature and fiction. A lot of my reading tends to be a little bit, it tends to be more academic. Um, well, you know, if you have a cocktail or two, it's kind of hard to focus on the writings of Eric Vogelin as an example. So I, I felt like I was kind of not able to produce what I wanted to produce. The other thing I noticed too, uh, if I was drinking in a social setting, I tend to be, you know, happy drinker, have a drink, I get kind of happy, maybe even silly. And I thought, I, you know, there's an element of where like I, I don't like being out of control. I never, I was never like dancing on a tabletop with a, with a lampshade on my head. But at the same time, you get kind of happy, you get kind of silly. And I thought, you know, I, I think I'm fun to be around. I think it's happy, fun time. For all I know, I'm acting stupid. Like I just, I just didn't trust, um, my perception of my own behavior when I had a drink or two in me. And, uh, and my wife would confirm now Lydia is not a drinker. She might have a sip or two. If I'm was drinking something, she'd say, yeah, let me have a sip of wine. But she, she wasn't like, Hey, pour me a glass too. Would you, uh, let's tie one on. She's never been that way, which is great. And, um, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, these like client dinners, you do these various things. I thought, ah, I don't trust my perception of how I'm behaving. And the funny thing is I have been in kind of business environments where someone's really hitting it hard and they act like embarrassingly stupid. 
And, not, and I don't think I ever got there, but just this kind of happy, silly, it's like, ah, I don't know if that's becoming of, of a man of <laughs> my age and stature, <laughs> whatever. Uh, I mean, I know what my age is. I don't know what my stature is. So there was that. And then, then the, the kind of knock-on effect, you know, sometimes you have a couple of drinks, like I didn't sleep so well. Like I just felt like I, I didn't sleep restfully, et cetera. Anyway, so that was kind of the thing. And it wasn't a big deal, but I eventually said, I feel like I just want to like clean out. I want to stop. And uh, it was February 5th. So I, I put this podcast out, I want to say late January. February 5th, I went down. It was a Sunday. And I remember saying to Lydia, hey, I want to tell you something. And the look on my face, I, I was really stressed out about it because um, it, it felt like I was, you know, going to get, it was hard. It was psychologically, emotionally hard to get to this place where I was willing to give it up. I said, I want to give up drinking. And, uh, you know, I talked to her a little bit and I proceeded to dump out, you know, the booze that I had. And, um, and you know, anything that I had that was like, not, had not been open before I, I saved it and gave it to friends. Um, but, you know, I dumped out a lot of nice alcohol. And um, uh, the, I'm sure that gin cleaned out our plumbing quite nicely. But um, anyway, so it's been over five months now. I haven't had a drink and there's there have been so many positives to that. And I just bring all this up because I was listening to my show at the beginning of the year. The kind of last one I did was Big Gap. And in prep of last week's and this one, you know, I had listened to that again and just was struck by the the drinking part of it. And so any of you out there listening, I mean, you know, look, if you're if you're a happy drinker or whatever, you know, I'm this is not a uh no one should drink. This is just a personal thing. I I I feel so good. I'm sleeping great. My mental acuity is on point, my ability to focus and stay focused, my ability to get things done. And, and also, funny enough, um, well, am I sleeping? Like really good, deep, restful sleep. Maybe I said that already. Um, the thing that's interesting too is I worried if I stop drinking, like I won't be fun to be around. You know, you go out to dinner, it's like, oh boy, I'm going to be boring. And I don't know how I am to be around, but I have a better time actually being sober. I hate to even say sober because I this, well, were you a drunk? Uh, but, but I guess any amount of alcohol affects, you know, our, we're organisms, it affects us. So I'll just call it sober. I have a much better time. I enjoy myself much more sober. Uh, it was awkward at first and, and I'm still in this weird, like if I go with friends, I almost feel compelled to tell them I'm not drinking. I don't know why. Cause it's like, just just don't say anything and don't drink. Like, who cares? Like, you, like sometimes it's more of a bigger thing in my mind than it is to the people I'm with. Uh, it doesn't bother me if other people are drinking. I'm not over there going, oh, I'm so thirsty. And that guy's just knocking back drinks and it's, I, I, I want to fall off the wagon. No, I kind of like it. So at some point in my life, I might have a drink again. I don't know. Uh, but for now, I'm really enjoying uh, not drinking. And I just thought I'd bring it up because I, 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 and it was funny. I remember that episode because I remember kind of saying, oh, I'm having a drink. There was like a little small voice inside of me that said, ah, that's not, that's not who you want to be. Like kind of talking about, hey, I'm having a drink. That's not really the kind of person that you want to be. Even I wasn't ashamed of drinking, but like making it kind of a public, uh, a bit of a spectacle. Hey, I'm having a drink and there's the sound effect. Like I, that didn't, I did it, but it didn't sit right with me. Uh, I don't remember if that was a trigger for me to say I'm done, but, uh, so yeah, so it's been over five months, just over five months, um, coming up on six months and it's kind of cool. I, uh, I really am glad it was hard, very hard to quit. First three weeks were brutal and, and not because I was having like all these, like, you know, I had to be put in a hospital and, and detox, but just, I kind of obsessed over it. Uh, first three, three weeks, I don't know if I said months, I meant three weeks were tough. I, I was obsessive over it. Once I got past that, it was fine. Health-wise, you know, your, your liver, your kidneys, all everything kind of clears up. Your skin, you look a little younger, which is kind of nice. You've got more energy, you sleep better. Um, but I'm really grateful just to be free of it and to have the, kind of the mental acuity and the ability to uh, get things done. So that's a little uh, that's a little kind of sidetrack opener. I'm not sure if that's a, a, I don't know what they call this kind of an opener in the business. Uh, but yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up. So for anyone that, that does listen um, to episode number 127, which is the first of this series and notes or kind of, you know, it stands out to him that I was having a cocktail, uh, you will either be happy or uh, sad to know or 
uh, you could care less to know that I'm not drinking anymore. So kind of cool. All right, folks, let's jump into it. Uh, episode number 129, we're talking about Eric Vogelin and his groundbreaking book, The New Science of Politics. Uh, got some great responses from the last episode. Thank you. Uh, Myron Weber sent some really interesting comments. One of the things that Myron brought up, he's a listener. He's also been a guest on the show and will be a, a soon to be guest as soon as we get through this little series here. One of the things that he brought up is um, is is Vogelin's, um, he, I think Myron phrased as mysticism. And, and Myron studied political science uh, at college. And I said, yeah, one of the things that's interesting, we'll get to it a little bit later, is Vogelin really identifies Gnosticism as kind of the defining feature, if you will, of, um, or defining attribute, if you will, of, of, of modern society, modernity. And we'll ex I'll explain why that is. And, and, and Vogelin thinks it's a problem. He's, he's not on with it. But that we're that we're very gnostic uh, in in our approach to life, which may surprise people because we tend to think of ourselves as very scientific, and you know we look at the data and we're trusting science and medicine and technology to to make the world a better place. But that really, even that alone, kind of gets at this this modern gnosticism. Vogelin identifies it as a really big problem, and uh, we are going to get to that uh, a little later in this series. But today what I want to talk about is where we left off last week, and that's the anthropological, um, anthropological principle. Now, I closed out last episode talking, kind of introducing this idea. So we've been talking about representative governments and the idea that a representative government is a government that represents the truth. Uh, as that society understands it. It's not necessarily representative of the individuals, meaning I voted for this guy and he went and represented me in the halls of Congress. Well, that's how Americans, we tend to think of representative government. But Vogelin makes the argument that theoretically a representative government is a government, a society that's kind of oriented around truth. Uh, it represents the truth of the cosmos as it understands it. And there are these kind of three types of representative governments or three ways that these truths are, are represented or manifested. One is cosmological, meaning societies that, that represent uh, the truth of the cosmos. Um, a lot of our ancient societies tend to be that way. They would say, hey, uh, our God is supreme. He's granted us favor. That's why we're conquering other nations. That's why we're building these giant Monuments. That's why we're forcing everyone to adopt our religion or die by the sword. You know, God would not allow us. Our God would not. Um, if if we weren't favored and chosen by Him, He wouldn't be giving us these victories. And if you're unwilling to embrace our God in our way, then then you have to die because you are a sinner against our God. You have to be punished. Uh, you have to be removed um, because you refuse to accept the truth, as it were. So you get these cosmo these societies that are oriented around cosmological truth, um, the truth of the cosmos, and these societies become kind of a mini cosm, uh, kind of a miniature representation of the cosmos as they understand it. Then you get anthropological. Uh, truth, meaning um, societies that are oriented around the truth of mankind. We're going to talk about that today. And then you get soteriological truth, uh, societies that are oriented around uh, salvation. How does one find salvation? And so we'll get to the soteriological next, but today we're going to talk about this anthropological um, orientation. Now, I'm not great at any of this, and if I lose any of you, I apologize. Uh, you're, you're. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best. Uh, that's that. By the way, that's not a, a kind of a self denigration. I'm just telling you that I'm wrestling with this, so I'm sharing this stuff with you as I'm working it out, and uh, that's really just my desire is to to work this stuff out. Hopefully, it helps you as you're thinking about the world we live in and even the society that we find ourselves in in in. And how is there a possible pathway forward? My whole reason for wanting to get into Vogelin's work is I had hoped that he had some insight 
uh, into what is a pathway forward, a sustainable pathway forward for society, because it feels quite hopeless, honestly. If you're, I mean, if you're a if you're a progressive, like a really lefty progressive, then you're in your glory. You're like, hey, things are finally going our way. But if you're a conservative, if you're a person that has any type of, um, I would say, small O orthodox grounding, uh, if 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 you see things through more of a traditional lens. Etc. Then you're dismayed right now, and you have to be wondering, like, what do we do? What's a, what's a way forward? So, um, yeah, I think I, 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 uh, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but that's one of my reasons for wanting to get into Vogelin. I guess what I was saying is just that, but at the same time, the work is dense, it's complicated, and I'm not necessarily an expert. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of mash my way through today's discussion. Um, <laughs> And I'll just, I'll just rely on the good graces of my lovely, wonderful audience. You guys really are lovely. I, I'm so encouraged by the notes you send me and, uh, and, and the ways you guys support me. It just really is a blessing. All right, um, let's take a look at this. So the anthropological principle. So in last, the last episode, we talked about the cosmological approach to society. I explained that just for a moment here. And I close with this idea that Plato said... Um, a polis, a polis, uh, a polity, a, a group of people, a society, is man written large. This is Plato. He writes this in the Republic, uh, Plato's Republic. I've not read the, Re- I've not read Plato's Republic, uh, but this is from Plato's Republic. He's well known for saying this. A polis is man written large, and what that means is, in essence, that a society is a collection of humans, of people. And these people have attributes and characteristics. They have uh, virtues and values and flaws and uh, sins and all these things that make up human beings. And when you collect these human beings together and they form a society, they have they have shared values. They have they have shared history, language, all these things that 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 go towards a successful society. That society has its own set of values, things that it thinks are important. I think of the Romans. The Romans were very big on, on, um, on uh, loyalty. You know, you, 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 like the loyalty was really big. That was a Roman, you know, ancient Rome. That was an ancient Roman kind of virtue that you, you were loyal. I think of the Vikings, you know, and this is kind of mythologized. I don't know if this is true or not, but like, you know, it was honorable to die in battle. You know, in some of the some of the older cultures were that way. It's like if you died in battle, you died at the the peak. It was like that was a virtue. It was an honor. You were blessed if you died in battle. Uh, you see these various societies, and they have varying, different um, value structures, hierarchies things that they think are important, things that they think are good, things that they think should be um, sought after. And so what Plato is kind of saying in this, saying this, um, this, I'll say axiom of his, although I don't know if it's an axiom, but that a polis is a, a, polis is a man uh, written large, is that the reason that these societies have these traits is because the individuals in the society have these traits. And so it's the collection of all these individuals that think that loyalty is important leads to this, this polis, this uh, society of Romans that say, hey, loyalty. And, um, and, and so when you see a society and you see its values, you can know something about the people of that society. Now, it seems kind of obvious when you say it, but there's something in there I think that's important. Now, historically speaking, societies didn't think this way until the Greeks. This wasn't, you know, you know like typically it was this cosmological truth. These, these ancient empires, if you will, thought of, and, and even the ones, even the societies that were not successful as an empire, the ones that did not flourish, they still believed that their society was oriented around the cosmic truth of you know their gods, their religion, the way that they saw the universe, the way that they understand understood how it all worked, how it all came to be, their place in it. This is this kind of cosmic truth. And and this 
this idea that that society really is a representation of the people, not meaning it's representing the will of the people, like the people are saying, hey, we want lower taxes. And then leadership is saying, we'll lower taxes. But a society that's saying, hey, we believe military might is of the utmost importance. Uh, that That is a collection of people that believe the same thing. This this idea, it's almost like a, it's like a new theory about society. And this new theory, theory kind of drives a wedge into that old kind of cosmic approach. It's saying, hey, look, uh, we need to order our society around the truth of the cosmos. That doesn't go away, but, but not at the price of man. So a society has to be both a microcosmos, a micro, microcosm, a, a, a smaller representation of this greater cosmos. But at the same time, it also has to be a macro anthropos, meaning it has to be a larger representation of man. Society can't just be cosmic truth. It has to both be at the same time cosmic truth represented and man represented. And you can't represent cosmic truth at the expense of man. And you could say the converse is true also back then. I would say now we tend to ignore cosmic truth, but that's we'll get to that. So you, so you kind of get this anthropological, anthropological... I always struggle saying that word. I don't know why. Uh, principle, meaning this idea that the polis is man written large, that you can look at a society and that tells you something about the individual. And at the same time, the society really should be ordered around cosmic truth, just not at the expense of man. So you get kind of two aspects now with this anthropological principle. One is it becomes a general principle for interpreting a society. You can look at a society and you kind of interpret it through, interpret it through this anthropological principle. What can I understand about man? What does the society tell me about man and specifically the men and, and ladies listening? When I'm saying man at the stage, I, I don't have the energy to say men and women all the time. I'm just talking about mankind. So hopefully uh, that's not offensive, et cetera. I'm just really talking about humankind here, but I'm just using the classic phrase, man, mankind, et cetera. I will, I, I will try to be cognizant or sensitive, all that jazz. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit here trying to be po politically correct. I think you can all appreciate that. Uh, if not, uh, you can email me. <laughs> <laughs> and we can have a fun email back and forth. Okay, so so the two aspects of of this kind of anthropological principle is one, it becomes kind of a general principle for interpreting, you know, for the interpretation of a society. So um, if every society is a reflection of the type of man, uh, or, or, or in essence, like every society is, is, is a reflection of the type of man that composes that society. So, th so that's a way to interpret. The second is it becomes an instrument for societal critique. So, so you can now use this anthropological principle to critique a society, meaning um, there is a type of humanity that is true and good. Like theoretically, we can, we can believe that there is an expression of humanity. There's a way to live as humans that is good and that there are ways that are better than others. Now, now the multiculturalists would like to tell us, no, 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 that's not true. All societies are equal. They're all equally good. They're all their own expression. It's all relative. It's very postmodern. Everything's kind of like, you know, you do your thing, I'll do mine. So the folks over there, yeah, they do some human sacrifice, but let's not be so judgmental. You know, they got good things over there. And hey, look at us. We, we're terrible. We, uh, yeah, we don't do human sacrifice, but, you know, hey, our food, it's not so good. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, all cultures are equal. They've all got good. They've all got bad. We can't judge them. But this principle saying, no, if, if, if Apollos is man written large and that, and that we can know something about the individuals, then, then we can use this as a way to judge 
to a society to kind of measure it because essentially that society is a reflection of the type of people in it. So we can then say, well, is it possible that there are better ways to be human than others? You know, there's one kind of type of humanity that's true. There's a true way to live. And then there are several types of ways to live that are, that that create disorder, disharmony, disunity, uh, bad things in culture, society. Now we can get at this because there's something else going on around this time. When, when Plato kind of comes up with this concept, the anthropological principle, there's, there's this you call it the discovery of the psyche, if you will. Uh, that's kind of what the uh, academics call it. Essentially, the psyche is the soul, the mind, the emotions. It's that inner part of the human being. The, the man, you know, if you look through the writings and you look through the ways that that we we humankind spoke about it stuff, we didn't talk about the psyche, about the soul necessarily. And there's this kind of thought uh, with the classical Greeks, Plato, Aristotle, some of these guys are saying, well, hang on a second. There's something more going on in a human being. Uh, there's this there's this soul. And the soul is is grasping for something pure, for something good. This is the kind of the pure essence of of the person. And, and this gets into like, this gets way beyond my pay grade. It gets into dualism. It gets into... Uh, well, it gets into all kinds of stuff that, that I'm not necessarily qualified to speak on. But, but there's this idea that there is a good way, uh, a true way. If there is a soul, if there's this inner part of us, then that must mean there's a pure, good, true way for the soul to live, to be aligned, to be. And, you know, Plato and Aristotle, they, they kind of get to this place where they're saying, well, um, the purest expression of true humanity is, is found in the philosophers because these are people dedicating themselves to understanding truth and wisdom and, and understanding and, and, and grasping the pure essence of the universe that we live in and life and so on. And so for them, kind of wisdom and truth, is, this is like the mature man. The mature man is, is this uh, individual that has, has dedicated themselves through living and experience and thought and study to, to discern what is true and good and how should we then live. And, and you see some of the themes that they discover show up in Paul, the apostle Paul's writing in scripture. So some of the thinking of the classical Greeks, they were already touching on these deeper kind of transcendent truths, even though they didn't know Christ, even though they didn't know uh, Yahweh, God, etc. They They were still finding kind of these deeper truths about humanity, things like love and humility, uh, you know, peace and joy, this, this kind of um, human flourishing. They understood that there were these good things that should be sought after. And that individuals that, that dedicated themselves, philosophers that dedicated themselves to wisdom and truth and through experience, study and discipline uh, matured in these things, even if they weren't perfect human beings, that these were the, the, the men whose character um, expressed true virtue, expressed true humanity. And so, you know, Plato, Aristotle, they, they were saying, well, these are the guys who are worthy of leading society because they're virtuous. Now, the problem they bumped up against was like, well, you can only find 100, you know, people in all of Greece or all of Athens, uh, even, you know, remotely worthy. And, and that wasn't a luft enough to form the, you know, the, the kind of nucleus of, uh, of society that they needed to lead it. But, but they at least theoretically understood this idea. And so with this anthropological principle, we can, we can do two things. We can use it to interpret a society. We can look at a society and say, well, what can we understand about <clears throat> the people, the values of these people? What kinds of people are they? What what kinds of hearts do they have? What kinds of values do they hold? Uh, we can look at their actions, behaviors, and so on. We can we can learn a lot. And then the second thing is we can also use it to evaluate, to measure, to judge a society. Is it good or not? Because does this society manifest true humanity, the truth of humanity? And 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 this is a, it's just a kind of a fascinating way to think. 
especially when, when you leap forward, you start looking at the societies that you and I live in right now. And we say, well, you know, what, what can we, what, what can we know about say American society or, or English society or French society or even Japanese society? And I bring up Japanese because I was looking at my data recently of downloads and I see some people in Japan are downloading the podcast. So I want to say welcome to you. Uh, thank you for being listeners, uh, folks in Japan. Love to have you along. Love. It's really cool to see the podcast kind of spread internationally. We've got France, Germany, Canada, obviously, the U.S., uh, Mexico, Japan. Uh, it's just kind of exciting. So welcome. Welcome aboard. Hope you hope you stick around and spread the word, please. <laughs> So we can start looking at our own societies and we can use this anthropological, anthropological um, principle to evaluate and to understand and interpret our societies, our respective societies. And we can do this historically as well. So the interesting thing about the psyche, if we're looking at this idea of the kind of, and, and, and again, we're following Vogelin's thought here. I'm not making all this stuff up. I'm not smart enough. I am handsome enough, just not smart enough. Um, <laughs> if we look at this psyche, this idea of the soul, what's interesting about it, and I think what is going to become more evident down the road or important down the road, is this idea that the psyche, the soul, let's call it the soul, is the place where we experience transcendence. So, Transcendence being something that transcends the material world. Usually when you're talking transcendence, you're talking about God. This is where the, the human being experiences God. And you can see, you know, when I talk about, hey, the discovery of the psyche, you're like, yeah, but Mike, what about the Old Testament? I mean, they were, you know, they, they knew about God back in the Old Testament. What's interesting, and this is not like a hard and fast rule, but if you look at a lot of the Old Testament, Moses Moses isn't saying like, you know, the Lord's been working on my heart. Um, I've been meditating on this thing and I feel like God's telling, I feel like God's telling me. That's something you'll hear Christians say. For those of you that are not believers, you know, you hang out with some Christians that go, well, you know, I was, uh, I was praying the other day. I feel, I felt like God was telling me, you know, it's this kind of sense. It's this soulish uh, thing, this thing that's happening inside for human beings. This is where God meets people and their souls. But if you look at the Old Testament accounts, it's a burning bush. It's a voice. It's the heavens opening up. It's the, it's the, it, you know, like stand here, um, cover your face. I'm going to pass by you. And it's the rum, you hear all this rumbling and earthquake and God's not in it. And then what's he in? He's in the still small voice. I mean, that's the, that's that kind of cue. But most of the Old Testament, God is not experienced in the soul. Now, I'm not saying that God refuses to do that. I'm just saying the, at the least, and again, I'm, I'm trying to communicate Vogelin here. He, he doesn't get into all this, but I'm unpacking it a little bit. I'm not trying to make any uh, statements because I'm learning myself, but this idea that like man is aware of his soul, his psyche, and that that is the place where transcendence, where man kind of experiences the transcendent, where he experiences God. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, the kings weren't like, hey, I was praying and God spoke to me. The prophet goes to the king and says, thus saith the Lord. If you do this, boom. If you don't do that, boom. You better repent, boom. Go out and smite them. You know, like this, it's always this kind of like God comes and brings a material message in the material world somehow. Burning bush, prophet, uh, angel of the Lord appears to people, you know. Um, now, I'm not excluding the still small voice or the soul or the psyche from the Old Testament. You can find examples of it. Uh, but even when God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, they've sinned, they've, they've partaken of the forbidden fruit, and now they're kind of covering themselves, they're naked, they're hiding from God. He's like, hey, why are you hiding from me? Why are you all covered up? Well, you know, we're naked. <laughs> Who told you you were naked? So, uh, yeah, God knew, obviously, but he's communing with them. It sounds like in the material world, it doesn't sound like it's this soulish thing where they're just praying and they stop praying. Like, wasn't that great? You know, we commune with God. So this development over time of this awareness of the psyche, the psyche, the soul is this place where the transcendent, where God and man meet. This is where we experience the transcendent. I'm not, I'm not excluding anything. I'm not trying to make, you know, definitive statements, but it's from a theoretical standpoint, this is important because this shift 
um, has an impact on society. Because what ends up happening is if, if the soul is the place where we experience the transcendent, this is where our relationship to God happens. Um, this is kind of a new authority. If I, if I'm, if I'm praying and I'm somehow in my soul communing with God, I'm touching the transcendent, I'm reaching out to God, I'm sensing him uh, uh, connecting with me. Maybe he's giving me guidance. Maybe he's giving me insight. Maybe he's just soothing my soul and telling me, have faith. It's going to be okay. You know, sometimes you go into prayer, you're not necessarily saying, hey, I'm praying for this big thing. I need God to reveal this giant thing. Sometimes we're going to him saying, I don't know what to do. And you don't always get an answer like, hey, here's what you ought to do. Sometimes it's just a sense of, I feel relieved of this burden. I know God has got it under control. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I just have this sense of confidence like God just, I don't know. He, he, I, I was praying and I just had this sense like it's going to be okay. And then lo and behold, it, it's okay. <laughs> like it works out. So with this focus on the soul, what you find is that the true order of the soul, if there is a God and the soul is where we experience transcendence, then the true order of the soul becomes the standard of measuring both the types of humans out there and the types of social order. Here's, here's what I think Vogelin means by this. I think he's presuming that, that there is God. Vogelin's not kind of asking the question, well, gee, is there a Lord? Is there a God? Is there the transcendent? He's convinced. And he believes from a scientific perspective that the ancients, the, the Aristotles and Plato's of the world, have proven this. Now, when, when Vogelin talks about science, he's speaking of it from the most classic sense possible. We, we in, the, in the modern West have gotten to science We've gotten to an idea of science that is so technical uh, and so narrow. It's empiricism. If I can't prove something materially, meaning if I can't measure something, it doesn't exist. Now, empiricism is good. It's a great tool. Like if you've got a really good hammer in your toolbox, it's phenomenal for pounding nails. And you can do a lot of amazing work with a hammer. But God help you if you need a saw. If you need to cut something, that hammer's not going to do it. You need a different tool. And so science is a kind of toolbox. And what, what we've done in the modern world, we've essentially said, no, science is a hammer. And it's only, you know, it's the only legitimate scientific tool. And so it's empiricism. It's empiricism, empiricism. It's empirical method. You test something, you, you know, you get your hypothesis, you test something, et cetera, it becomes a theory, you know, and so on and so forth. But we can measure it. What does the data say? We love the data. You know, all through the COVID, oh, the data says, and I'm trusting the science, which everybody knows was a bunch of nonsense. It was ridiculous. Uh, we're, we're so vaunted up with pride. We puff ourselves up. And, oh, we're so scientific. All we were really doing was following the herd in fear. Uh, we we're going after personalities, you know, St. Anthony Fauci. If he says it, it must be true. We're going, we're aligning on political lines. Like if somebody from the other side said something that was true, but we didn't like it, well, that guy's a liar. If my guy says something that's not true, but he calls it science, oh, I'm following the science. It's got to be true. I, there are people today, today, I saw people today and I saw people yesterday uh, wearing masks. They're wearing masks. It's July 2023. COVID's like so far in the past. I know people still get COVID. People still get the flu. People still get the common cold. People still get the measles. Human beings get sick, folks. This, is, this has been the human experience uh, from the, almost the very beginning. Uh, I suspect it's going to be the human experience probably all the way to the end. Uh, but we act like, oh my gosh, if you get COVID, they got COVID. It's like, yeah, they got COVID. They got the cold. Oh my gosh, they got the flu. There are people running around wearing masks outdoors. Now, I'm not even talking about on a crowded subway train. Oh, we don't have subway trains in Charleston that I'm, a, I'm aware of. We do have uh, uh, horse carts that will pull you around town. These horses will take you around. You get a tour of uh, the historic French Quarter, et cetera. Uh, but we don't have any uh, subway that I'm aware of. But like these are people outside 
wearing masks. And I'm thinking to myself, you just must be so brainwashed. You must be so terrified. I do get, hey, look, even before COVID, there were people that had health issues that might wear a mask. Okay, I get that. But, um, but my point being, we have this whole idea that we're so scientific, we're so fact-based, we're so empirically oriented as a people, we're so superior. We are more superstitious and, and, and manipulable manipulatable. What is that? Uh, easily manipulated. <laughs> Anybody out there uh, give speech lessons? Because I'd like to sign up. Um, it's ridiculous. But but Vogelin is approaching all this from a classical sense of science, which is, yes, we include empiricism in that toolbox, but also we include reason, that we can scientifically know things by using reason and logic, and that reason and logic are part of the broader family of scientific endeavor. And uh, met- metaphysics, physics, philosophy, uh, theology used to be considered, you know, the, I think it was considered the queen um, of the sciences. I could be wrong. But, but this idea that science is not just limited to empiricism. So, so Vogelin is working under um, the argument that, that he makes quite well, actually, in his introduction. We didn't really cover that. That, that God's existence is scientifically proven, that there is something good, that there is something transcendent, that there is something outside of this universe, has been scientifically proven when you think of science in its broader, more classical sense. And so when we talk about the soul, Vogelin is approaching it already saying, like, I believe in the transcendent. He's not out there questioning. And so his new science of politics is kind of contextualized within this understanding that there is a God. Now, he doesn't say, hey, I'm Catholic. Oh, I'm Protestant. Oh, I'm, you know, Greek Orthodox. He, he doesn't. And, and what's interesting about Vogelin as an individual, if you look into his life a little bit, people didn't know. He never, like, he, he, it was hard to pin him down. Like, what is this guy? Is he a Puritan? No, I, and by some of his writings, you can see he's not a Puritan. He's kind of hard on the Puritans as being a, an example, and we'll talk about them later, uh, of kind of like a Gnostic uh, revolution back, I think it was the 1600s, maybe the 1500s in England. But, um, you know, what is he? Is he Orthodox? Is he Catholic? Is he Protestant? Is he, a, is he like a born-again Christian? You know, what, what is he? He was very hard to pin down, and I think he liked that. Like he kind of, with his students, was playful about it. He wouldn't let them know. But he was very clearly a believer in the transcendent and in, in kind of the classical, classic um, uh, God that, that you and I might kind of conceptualize as Christians. And those of you that aren't, I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, so, so as he gets to this discussion of the soul, he's approaching it as someone that believes in the transcendent. And so this idea that... If there is this God, there is this God, if there is this God, this God is good. We know certain things. He's, you know, there's purity, there's goodness, there's uh, love, all these ideal kind of qualities and attributes that we um, give to God. He's all powerful, all knowing, all present, all these attributes. Then for the soul that this that connects to this transcendent God, for it to be aligned properly, has to be aligned. Uh, For the soul to be true in its true order, it has to be aligned to the reality of this God. That the soul in connecting, it can't be out of alignment. It can't be antagonistic. It can't be uh, uh, positioned against it. It, The soul itself has to be loving, has to be uh, kind, has to be humble, has to be good, has to be true. Now we're limited beings. We can't be all powerful, all knowing, all those things. But we that soul has to be aligned with those qualities. Otherwise, a soul that's not that way is, is out of alignment with, with the transcendent. And that's a soul that is not true. For, for a soul to be in true order, it has to be in order with the reality of God because the soul is where we, where we connect with the transcendent. And so at that state, at that, at that kind of, once you know that, you can start kind of measuring both human types, like what kinds of people are there? There are, you know, there are lustful people, there are angry people, there are, but by the way, these aren't categorizations where it's like, well, I'm just stuck. I'm a lustful person. I can't, like, I've I've been, I've been, you know, typecast. I'm in Hollywood and I can never get a job other than playing the lustful guy. (laughs) 
<laughs> I guess the kiss of death, I guess, for a, for an actor to be typecast. Um, I don't mean it that way, but like you, you have these types of people. They're you know warlike people and so on. They can have other attributes. A warlike person can be loving, and I'm not limiting, but but you can start to look at the kinds of souls. How are souls aligned? What things are they aligned along? What kind of order or disorder do these souls have? And, and there's really only one kind of soul that can be that can have order, and that's a soul that is in order with the transcendent truth, with God. Any other soul, if it's not ordered along those transcendent truths, is disordered. But it also becomes the way, because if you think that the, the polis is man written large, if a soul can be disordered, it's not ordered along what's true, then you can have society, societies of people of disordered souls. You can have disordered societies. So you can have social order that, that, and, and this, that, that represents kind of the reality of God, and you give social orders, quote-unquote, really disorder, that represent kind of this uh, soul out of alignment with what's true. So really, a society uh, represents the truth about human existence on the border of transcendence. That's, that's a phrase from, so from, from Vogelin, because the anthropological principle is not about an arbitrary idea of man. It's not an arbitrariness. We're very arbitrary in our current world. We're moving away from that, by the way. We've, we've gone through this phase of arbitrary. Hey, your way is just your way. My way is my way. You know, hey, hey, it's plurality. You kind of do your thing. I'll do mine. Now we're actually moving away from that. And we are ordering around disorder. If you refuse to be disordered, you are evil. You're considered evil. You know, if you say, hey, I, I, I love God. I want to be loving. I want to be, you know, you're terrible. The only, there's only one way you're allowed to love that's by embracing transgenderism and LGBTQ and that, you know, all this, like, they're just, it's just crazy town. If you don't embrace like liberal progressive politics, you're, you're horrible. You're a terrorist. You're, you're a domestic terrorist. You're practically a criminal. Uh, you should be deplatformed. You should lose your job. You should be spat upon in the streets. Vogelin makes this argument or he identifies this argument that man finds his true nature through finding his true relationship to God. And that's this idea of, of the aligned soul, that if you find your true relationship to God, you're, you know, and, you, and you find it through your soul, because that's where you experience transcendence, then you find your true nature. Your true nature is found through a true relationship to God. When you know who you are in relationship to God, uh, then you really know who you are and what you're made of. And of course, Christianity teaches there's only one way to to have a true relationship with God, that's through Christ, that the whole work of the cross was how can man find God? There's, how can man connect to God? How can he be connected in his soul to God? How can, how can man be good enough to even stand before God? Well, through the cross of Christ and his resurrection, that has become possible. So what you find as we wrap up here is that God is actually the measure. You know, in the anthropological principle, we're saying, hey, um, we can use it both to kind of uh, understand kind of uh, a society. You know, we can use it to interpret a society, but we can also use it to measure a society. But but what you find is be, because of the soul and the souls need to be in order to be in relationship with God and to represent that order, that God becomes the true measure of society. So this means like the truth of man and the truth of God become inseparable, that, that man can only be true to the degree that he is related to, connected to the truth of God. And as man reveals, as, as man is in harmony with God's truth, uh, that's how a society can be measured as good in order as representing truth. I'm going to read a little quote here. It says, man will be in the truth of his existence when he has opened his soul, his psyche to the truth of God. And the truth of God will become manifest in history when it has formed the psyche or the soul of man into 
receptivity for the unseen measure. So God is the measure. So we're talking about God is the measure. So man will be in the truth of his existence when he has opened his soul to the truth of God. And the truth of God will become manifest in history when it has formed the psyche of man into receptivity for the unseen measure. So what we see with this anthropological principle, this way of ordering societies, where we saw before the cosmological approach, it's like there's this God that we worship, and so we're going to conquer the earth in his name, and he's going to give us victory, and we're going to go out and kill, and we're going to destroy, and these are pagans, and they have to die, and if they bend the knee, then we'll let them live, but they have to adopt everything. We see this shift away from that to this idea that societies, yes, have to represent the truth of the cosmos, but the way they do that is through the manifestation of the soul submitted to God. When, when mankind is submitted to God, through his, his soul is submitted to God, then God can manifest himself uh, in history, in a society, um, as those souls are aligned and, and make room for the true measure of God, this un, unseen measure. So, I, so that's it. That's it in a nutshell, a 58-minute nutshell. Actually, I probably spent eight minutes talking about uh, giving up drinking, but that's the anthropological uh, approach to truth in society. And really what we see instead of it just being about man is that for it to work, um, not for it to work, but for society to be good, to be true, to be judged and measured in a way where we say this is good, it has to align with the reality of God. So you have the cosmological meaning the society is a, is a microcosm of the a microcosmos. And then we see on the other side, it is a macro anthropos. It's a, a manifestation of God on the macro level in the society, and it's a miniature representation of God's cosmos, the reality of God's cosmos. So that's that for the, for that. Next, we're going to get into the soteriological. We're going to talk about uh, Rome and the soteriological society. Uh, I hope that this is interesting, you guys. I appreciate the opportunity just to talk about it because it helps me. But you know, I read it multiple times. I write notes. And then when you have to articulate it verbally, uh, it just helps bring it together. So, guys, I hope you're enjoying this as well. Do me a favor. You can go to the show notes. Um, you can subscribe to my newsletter. I'll put a link in there. The newsletter is called Broadside. It comes out once every Friday. I tend to address more um, contemporary issues, something that maybe happened this week or a relevant thought for the, for the given time. That's once a week on Friday. You can, you can uh, sign up there. The show notes can be found on the new website. It's thecurrency.show, thecurrency.show forward slash episode 129. Uh, there's some links there. You can download the episode. You can subscribe on various uh, popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple. Uh, I'll even throw a donation link in there. You don't have to donate, but if you throw a couple nickels at me, it just helps me put the show together. This takes some time and there's a couple dollars here and there that hosting costs and so on. So you can always donate to the show. Guys, more than anything else, though, I really am grateful for your time, your listenership and your support. Love each and every one of you. I pray God's blessing on you. And I look forward to talking to you again in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.